Uh, amplification or not, God always blesses the reading of His Word. Um, it's okay. Um, good morning. How's everyone? Uh, if you don't know don't me, my name's Jonathan. I'm one of the, el- one of the elders, one of the pastors here. Um, if you didn't pick up by now, the guy crying uh, all morning uh, is Lucas. Yeah, he normally leads the team here, but uh, yeah, we're just kind of, we're, we're doing our thing, aren't we? Um, uh, Happy New Year to everyone. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, uh, I like the New Year. Um, something about that kind of fresh start, new beginning. Uh, even though there's really nothing different about today than there was yesterday. I kind of miss those Ecclesiastes uh, introductions, don't you? Hey, good morning. To ch- welcome to church. Your life is meaningless. Um, none of this really matters. Um, <laughs> Luke says, I don't... Um, but, uh, yeah, so uh, fresh beginnings, new starts, new year. Uh, we make our, uh, our resolutions. I tend to make the same ones every year. I want to be healthier. want to exercise. want to eat better. I uh, want to know God more. I want to learn how to pray. want to learn how to uh, read my Bible more, spend time with Him. want to be a better dad, better husband, better friend. Uh, normally go on throughout the year to fail at all those things, and you get to the n- next new year and make those same res- resolutions. But... Uh, the thing I, I, I really like about this time of year, uh, Christmas time leading up to New Year, uh, is in, in, in general, we just kind of tend to slow down, don't we? Um, most of you have had time off work, and we gather around with our families, with our friends. Uh, we sit around tables, have meals, drinks, and, and reflect. Just kind of stop your, your normal routines uh, and reflect back uh, on our lives, um, which I think is a really great thing to do. Um, if you don't do that, do it. Uh, me and my wife Jenny try to do that. We'll, we'll, we'll sit down and, and we'll talk about all the Lord's done in the life of our family, the, the journey we've been on uh, the kind of past year. Remember the, the good bits, um, the, the really hard bits. We'll laugh at things. We'll, we'll cry at things. Um, we do all these things, and you should do all these things, because the journey is really important. Um, the, the journey is is really important to, to remember the, the, the valleys that you walked through, the, the hilltops that you've been on, all the, all the things that uh, you felt throughout those things. They're really important to do that. Um, we, you could even see this morning that uh, the journey that our, our church family has been on this year has been significant, hasn't it? Uh, we always say that. This year has been a significant one. It's been a big one. But this year feels like a weighty year. Um, good things and bad things. So we spent most of, of this past year um, kind of working towards um, the planting of, of another congregation. We sent uh, 30, 40 of, of our people, some of our leaders, and, and we sent them over to South Belfast to plant another church. It's been unbelievable. Um, we hope to keep doing that as, as we keep growing. Uh, we've added people onto our staff team. We've, we've multiplied with this growth that's been happening, a very healthy year. Um, Alongside of that, we've also experienced and are experiencing, as you've seen, a lot of suffering. Um, I can look out and, and I, I know these kind of individual uh, examples of, of suffering in, in your life. I don't know all of them, um, but certainly uh, we can, the most kind of tangible one is, is, is our pastor getting sick, diagnosed with cancer, watching him uh, get sick, get weak. It's been hard to do, um, but we do it anyways. We stop. And we, we reflect back, we remember these things, we remember the journey, uh, we remember, we feel those emotions again. 
Um, why? Because those things are important. Because those emotions, those feelings are real. Uh, because uh, God has purpose in them. Do you, do you believe that? Do you believe that God, God has purpose in every aspect of your journey? The, the really great bits and the really, really difficult bits. There's purpose in those things. Um, so if, if you do believe that, then it's important to, to reflect on those things and to look for him in those things. Um, one example for me is uh, a few months ago, uh, two kind of big storms of, of suffering kind of collided in, in our lives within days of each other. They'd not directly affected me, but one was my brother being diagnosed with cancer. Uh, the other was another family in our MC uh, going through a, a, a big battle. Um, and just kind of through that, I kind of experienced uh, kind of physical stress in that, heart palpitations, um, just the, walking with people through that, the, just the, the emotional kind of feeling of suffering for my brothers and sisters. Um, and praise God, that lasted a few weeks, and it, it went away, rested, kind of spoke God's word into my, into my heart. Um, but my point is, it would be meaningless for, for me to look back and remember that and then just turn and walk away. Um, rather, what we should do is, is reflect on our journey, r- remember those feelings again, um, but let's see how the Lord is working in them all. Let's, let's, st- let's talk about those things. Let's, let's, let's rejoice together. Let's, let's mourn together. Um, and ultimately, let's search for, for God's glory and all these things and our joy. Um, essentially, let's put these things in their proper place, if you know what I mean, um, which is... One of the reasons why we really wanted to start this year, um, or we eventually thought it was a good idea, to, to begin this year with a series in the Psalms, uh, because that's what the Psalms do. They, they help us put our feelings in the right place. Um, as you remember the journey, all the ups and downs, as you're honest with, uh, with how great things have been and how terrible things have been, the Psalms help us put our feelings in the right place, um, because the Psalms are very honest, aren't they? And they're very real. That's one of the things I really love about the Psalms is the psalmists don't really hold anything back. They don't pull any punches. Um, a lot of times reading the Psalms can make us feel very uncomfortable. You ever read the Psalms in like a, a group setting and you get to a certain bit of a psalm and you're like, I don't really want to say that out loud because it sounds horrible. But, this, but the, the psalmists are, are completely honest with, with where they've been and, and where they're going on their journey. Um, but the beauty beautiful thing about the Psalms is that, is that they are honest, that they are real, that they are God-breathed in those things, and that the, the, the writers are, are honest as they look back on their journey, on their lives, uh, and as they, they feel the feelings that the journey has, has brought. Um, and because of that, they can be kind of scary to read, because what I would like is for the Bible just to say things that are kind of pious and nice. Um, but the Psalms help us uh, Josh Moody, in, in his book, The Journey to Joy, that's about the Psalms of Ascent, he says that the Psalms help us reconnect between the objective and the subjective, between the truth about God and the truth of God, between uh, fear and faith, between failure and trust, between suffering and joy, between hate and forgiveness. All these things that you will feel in your life that you will come up against, uh, the Psalms help us see the truth of the gospel in them. Because at the center of the Psalms, even though the writers might not have been uh, aware in a literal sense, is, is the gospel, is, is Jesus, uh, uh, his death and his resurrection. 
Um, all through the Psalms is the theology of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And, and the, the Psalms help us point towards uh, Jesus uh, in all of our uh, journeys. Psalms help us uh, put our feelings in the right place as we reflect on our journey. Um, and in particular, these set of psalms that we're studying, Psalm 120 to 134, the Psalms of Ascent, um, these special collection of psalms uh, put together in ancient Israel for this purpose. Um, Andrew uh, talked last, last week, he kind of introduced these, these songs of ascent. Um, generally speaking, these, these songs are, are pilgrim psalms. They're songs that, that people would sing on a journey. Um, Moody also says that these songs are a journey, a journey from a long way away to the very heart of God. Um, songs of ascent. Where are they ascending to? Where are these pilgrims going? Uh, the people of Israel had these kind of three great pilgrim uh, festivals in Jerusalem that they would go to gather uh, every year. See, so the Passover uh, represented the, their deliverance, obviously. Uh, they remember uh, the Passover, the Lord delivering them out of slavery uh, in Egypt. So they would, they would remember and, and, and dwell on uh, or think on the, the delivering hand of God. You had the, the Feast of First Fruits where they thought about God as their great provider. They would take the, the first fruits of their harvest and, and offer them to God. And it was the Lord who was the provider. Uh, you had the Feast of Booths. It's a reminder that, that the Lord is the one who is is uh, uh, preserving them. Uh, so all through these songs, you have a sense of deliverance, of salvation, God's ongoing provision for us. Um, uh, all, all these are being expressed in these songs as, as the people would sing as they ascended into, into Jerusalem for these, these festival dates. And um, here's the intention of these psalms of ascent. Uh, they're intended to, to take us on a spiritual journey uh, from a far way away right to the very heart of God. Right, right through the various difficulties, right through the very hard times that, that may, uh, you may want to like kind of derail from the journey. It's a journey straight to the heart of God. Um, Moody says that when you read the Psalms of Ascent, um, think of yourself as embarking. Uh, you're, you're starting a journey. It's, it's your journey. It's our journey. But it all centers on God. It all, it all, uh, it's all in relation to Him. All intended to glorify Him and bring us joy. Uh, let's pray again before we uh, jump straight into 122. Uh, Father, we, uh, we just want to thank you again for what you've done for us. Uh, that you are, as we sang, you are Lord, you are creator uh, of all, heaven and earth and the universe. Yet you consider us uh, lowly sinners. And not only do you consider us, but you love us. Uh, love us enough to, as we've been pondering on for weeks, to send your son into the earth. To make a way uh, for us to come near to you again. And that's what we're doing this morning, God. We're gathering together as your people, as the dwelling place of your spirit. Lord, don't let that become uh, stale to us. Don't let that just to become normal for us. Uh, Spirit, we would ask that you would help us. Uh, we will pray this prayer 
every single time we gather together, that Spirit, would you pray, would you do what only you can do? These people's hearts are in your hands, God. I just pray that uh, what the, uh, the old psalmist, uh, the, old, uh, uh, the old prayer says, that, uh, that you would water the hearts of those who hear thy word, that seed sown in weakness may be raised in power. Cause us to behold thee here in the light of special faith and hereafter in the blaze of endless glory. May we see you today, Jesus. May our hearts be uh, awakened again uh, for you. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So if you aren't there yet, turn to 122 uh, in Psalm. And all, already through, the, through these Psalms, you can see this, uh, this sense of progression on the journey. Uh, so we didn't necessarily go into uh, Psalm 120, but in that Psalm, you see this repentance taking place, uh, this cry for deliverance from the psalmist's distress. It says, deliver me, O Lord, um, this recognition of a need uh, for God, a need of deliverance. It's a really important part of the journey. Um, then we saw last week in Psalm 121 that, that he's making his way to Jerusalem. He's, he's setting out on his journey. Um, this, there's this kind of anticipation uh, for, his, uh, for his arrival. Um, so there was a, a recognition for, uh, of a need deliverance, uh, a setting out on his journey, um, and, and what the psalmist uh, uh, learns in Psalm 121 is that it's the Lord that's his help. So he looks, his, looks up, he raises his eyes up to the hills to see where his help comes from. And the, it's the Lord that is his keeper. The, the Lord is the shade on his right hand. The Lord is, will protect him from all evil, will, will keep his life, will guard his going out and his coming in. Uh, this time forth and forevermore. He's, he's learning to trust the Lord, uh, to have confidence on his journey. And then in Psalm 122, we have this uh, arrival into the city. Um, he's, he's made it to his destination. Um, we're not sure exactly how long uh, his, uh, his journey has been. For everyone singing the song, it's probably been a little bit different. Uh, but we know for certain that it's not been an easy journey for them. Uh, Elder kind of... Uh, looked at this last time. It's hot. Um, it's uh, treacherous. Anytime you, um, you take a journey at this time in the world, um, there's, there's risk involved. But he's, he's made it. He's arrived to his destination. He's excited um, to, to, to reach his destination. Uh, that's that's the, the first thing you have to kind of ask that you kind of see in, in verse 1 is he says, I'm glad. He has, he has this excitement, Okay. Um, I'm glad when they said to me, let us, let us go to the house of the Lord. Verse 2, he says, our feet have been, have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Um, he, he, we've made it, okay? I, he, the sense, if you've been on, the, on a trip, maybe when you're a kid, and you're, you're going with your, your family to a journey, and you know you're near, and you have this, this excitement to, to arrive. Um, he's, he's saying, we've, we're standing within the gates of Jerusalem. Uh, he looks up at her, look how beautiful this, this place is, how wonderfully built she is. Um, and and I, I think the important question to ask is, why, why such, such gladness? Why such excitement? Um, you look at verse 1. He says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. He's excited to have, to have finally reached his destination. He's finally arrived in Jerusalem. 
So you, can, you can't really say he's excited to, to have been there because the journey's been long. He's maybe relieved to have been there because of that point, but he's, he's excited for one reason, and that's because of the reason that he's made the journey. Uh, he's made the journey for one reason, and that's to worship the Lord. I was, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. He's, he's journeying to Jerusalem. He's, he's ascending for one reason, and that's to worship God. Why is he so glad? Because Jerusalem is a, is a nice place to visit, uh, because Jerusalem has, has beautiful buildings, maybe has really great street food, good goat or something. No, there's something more important than the beauty of the city here. What's so important about Jerusalem at the time? What's in Jerusalem? Temple. The temple is there. It's important because this is the place where God abides. This is the place where the people of God gather together. This is the place where God's presence is pleased to dwell. This is the psalmist's focal point here. This is why he's so glad to have arrived. Let us go to the house of the Lord. Let us, let us go to the place where God abides, where, where he dwells, and we're going to gather there to worship. Worship is his focus here. It's the, it's the reason he's made the journey. And the first thing we, we really notice is, is this gladness of worship here, this gladness to gather and worship. Um, and one of the things we uh, will see, we're going to kind of look at three different things that we see in his gladness of worship. Uh, the first one here is this, is this move from the many to the one, uh, from, from this, this scattered individuals to this gathered one. Uh, notice his language. He says, I was glad when they said to me, okay, he's thinking of, of corporate gathering here. He says, let us go to the house of the Lord. Yeah, he, doesn't, he doesn't say, I'm going to go to the house of the Lord, I'm making my way to Jerusalem, ascending into the hill. I'm standing within the gates, and I'm going to go up. He doesn't say that. He doesn't use that language. And I think it's, it's significant. He, he, he doesn't see worship with the sense of individualism. He's, he's thinking about gathering with others. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. This, this corporate worship that's about to take place. And obviously this is, um, I don't have to tell you guys, this is one of the great struggles in our society, isn't it? The Western culture is one of individualism. Um, you've, you've, you've heard all of these sayings before. You be you. Um, just be true to yourself. You're on a journey, but follow your heart. Uh, find yourself along the way. Um, the basis of our culture is, is self. What does it all mean for me? Uh, how am I best to work it all out for me? And obviously, this struggle of individualism has been um, uh, exacerbated even with the digital age, isn't it? Um, we have our social medias that we're on, which aren't all that social in the end. But you have this, how do I portray myself in the best way possible, and then what do people think about that version of me? Um, people have even tried to, to um, individualize, to digitize church. Go to church on an app. Um, we have the individual freedom in that, right? Um, this, this, it goes to the maximum of, I will worship God, but in my own way, uh, on my own conditions. You can worship God any way you want. And that's this, this sense of individualism. And I, I have friends who, their idea of church is, 
uh, maybe walking on the beach with their family, uh, enjoying each other, enjoying nature, um, which is great. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with, uh, I fully encourage you to, to go with your family to walk on the beach, but listen to me, it's not church. This idea of, of don't constrain me, don't insist on worship having to be done in a certain way, uh, in, in a particular fashion, in a public setting. But the problem with that is it's not what we see in, in the scriptures. Um, look, when you, when you get to, to the book of Acts, the chapter 2, what do you see them doing? A bunch of individuals scattered through Jerusalem, engaging with God in their own way. No, in verse 1 he says, they were all together in one place. All through the book of Acts you see the, the Christians regularly gathering together, participating in the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, prayer, giving themselves to one another, giving of their means to one another. This, this interaction, this gathering. This, you see all through the book of Acts this, this gladness of gathering for worship. It's the same gladness that you see in Psalm 122. In Acts 4, persecution comes upon the church. And what happens? They gather together to worship the Lord. This, this incredible description of the gathering of God's people, it's undeniable through the Scriptures. And you keep moving your way, and even Jews and Gentiles, people who are, who are opposite of one another, gathering together to worship God, worship taking place in a corporate setting, enjoying fellowship with one another, enjoying one another. There's this undeniable emphasis on, on corporate gathering for worship in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And what do you even see when you get to the very last book of the Bible? The very end, all throughout the book of Revelation, is this redounding emphasis on corporate gathering for worship. And Look at Revelation 7, 9 to 12. I think it's on, on the screen here. This is amazing. John gets to peek in, and he sees what, what these last uh, moments will look like, or maybe the beginning moments. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing where? Before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with, with palm branches in their hands. What are they doing? They're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Even have angels standing there and, and elders and, and these uh, four living creatures all gathered together to worship. This great corporate worship gathering now, you see the same throughout the rest of Revelation, chapter 14 and 15 and 19, and those last few chapters, this, this celebration, this wonderful corporate gathering before the Lord. And listen, if you, if you don't think that you need the church to worship, you're going to be greatly disappointed with heaven. Because heaven is a great corporate celebration of the Lord. There's this emphasis all the way from, from the Old Testament to the New and all the way to this final grand consummation where the body of Christ from all ages, a great multitude that you can't number from every tribe and tongue is gathered together forever. So when the psalmist says he's glad to go up to Jerusalem, he's not simply saying he's excited to see the scenery of Jerusalem. 
this beautiful city. He's excited for the way of worship. Gathering together with his brothers and sisters to worship the Lord. He's valuing Jerusalem not for the scenery, but for its central focal point of worship. I think it's, it's important, though, to note that this, this earthly Jerusalem that we read about and that he's ascending to for worship, that he's excited for, we should understand it in, in a real temporal sense. It's a temporal destination that, that's, that's pointing towards something that's more ultimate. Um, it, it should, it should it, remember all these things in, in, the, in the Old Testament. We read them in the lens of, of the gospel, in the lens of, of what happens in the New Testament. So it's... It should, in a sense, symbolize for us this corporate worship, this, this corporate gathering of the body of Christ. So they gather together for, for thanksgiving, for sacrifice, for worship. And when we read the psalm and, and all the emphasis on Jerusalem, we should think of it in that temporal sense. Because in the New Testament, what do you see? And you don't see all the church gathering together only in Jerusalem, do you? This, this exhortation for the believers to, to, to make a pilgrimage to this one place, this, to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. We don't ascend there anymore. That exhortation in the New Testament is gone. Why? You all know why. Um, even for the psalmist here, his, his gladness, his excitement. Again, it's not because there's anything particularly special about the beauty of the scenery of Jerusalem. Okay, we've said his excitement about arriving in Jerusalem is for one reason. It's because the temple is there. The temple is in Jerusalem, and the temple is where God's presence is. The temple is where God abides. It's where he makes his residence. That's why Jerusalem is important. It's so critical to them because it's the solitary place where God reveals himself. But again, we should read this in a temporal sense because what do we see about where God abides in the New Testament? There's no, there's no emphasis on the early believers to make a pilgrimage because that's where God meets them. Again, we see, you know this, we, we know that in the New Testament, the church is the dwelling place of God. I don't know how many times we've, we've talked about Ephesians 2, but I'm going to read it again. It should be on the screen as well. Ephesians 2, 13. Paul says, But now, in Christ Jesus... You who were once far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who, have made us, uh, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the laws of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body. How? Through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached, and preached peace to you who are far off and, and peace to those who are near. And verse 18 is amazing. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You want access to God? You want access to the Father? You don't go to the temple. You go to Jesus. So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, uh, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone, he's the one it's all built on. In him, the whole structure being joined together grows into what? A holy temple in the Lord. 
in him, in Jesus, you, church, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Isn't this amazing? Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 3.16. He says it in a less kind of poetic way. He just says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? These guys are maybe not as, as smart as the other guys. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Remember what Peter says, 1 Peter 2. He says, you yourselves are like spiritual stones being built up together as a spiritual house. You're being built together to be this temple for God's dwelling. That's why in Hebrews 12, uh, the writer says, don't neglect to meet together. Don't, don't, don't forsake the assembly. Why does he say that? Because you're the new temple. Because just as it was so important for, for the Jews to ascend to Jerusalem to worship, to meet with the Lord as they, as they met with one another, it's absolutely vital that we gather together to, 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 so that we can be built together into this spiritual house, this holy temple, this dwelling place of, uh, for God. In his, in his gladness of worship, you see this move away from being scattered individuals into be a gathering one. It's really, really important for us to, to see that. Also in his gladness of worship, you see uh, unity and diversity taking place. Look at verse 3. It says, Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together. I love this language. Um, that, that word bound is, is closely connected to the word companion. You're, you're bound together. It's the same word that's, that's used in Exodus 26 when, when describing the construction of the tabernacle, the first place of God's presence. The instructions uh, for making the tent of worship said, said to join the tent together so that it will be a unit, so that it will be one so when he's looking at Jerusalem, uh, there's this sense of unity, of, of a sense of oneness. So at the center of the city, there's this, this grand structure with the walls and towers and houses, and the centerpiece of worship united into this breathtaking structure. Eugene Peterson writes, uh, he has a commentary on these uh, Psalms of Ascent as well. He says, the city itself was a kind of architectural metaphor for what worship is. All the pieces of masonry fit compactly. All the building stones fit harmoniously. There are no loose stones, no leftover pieces, no awkward gaps in the walls or towers. It was well built, compactly built, skillfully built, at unity within itself, bound firmly together. This, this emphasis on unity he was thrilled to be standing within the gates of Jerusalem because as he stood within those gates, he's now corporately joined with his brothers and sisters in worship and devotion in the Lord. You see that, that emphasis of unity that's being uh, emphasized here. And, and for us, just, just as Jerusalem was, was the central focus uh, of these pilgrims, because why? Because the Lord was meeting them there. Um, even so, this, this unity that is found in the Lord is displayed in the body of Christ. It's a focal point for us as well. Look at verse 4. Not only was there unity, there was diversity in that unity. 
So they're, they're going up to Jerusalem, this, this holy city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. Okay? Not just one tribe, not just a, a single people group, but tribes, plural. Um, I love this picture of, of various tribes all throughout Israel coming together to gather, to send into Jerusalem as one. Because um, they, they weren't all the same, just like here. Not, not everyone's the same. So there would have been... Uh, kind of sea tribes, fishermen, there's country tribes, the farmers, the colchis coming together, different accents, and just like here, these diverse tribes going up to this compactly built city, each tribe with their particular interests, but when they went up to the city, they laid aside their differences for the sake of unity. It's like when Paul writes in, in 1 Corinthians 12, he gives this illustration of the church as a body. Um, he, he describes how we're all members of that body, um, individually different though. Um, you have various different parts of the body, uh, but he says we're all members of one another. There's that diversity, uh, but there's this incredible unity that when all the different parts of the body come together, they function well together. They're, 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 they're bound firmly together. kind of language that's used to help us understand this gladness of worship. I focus not on the individual, but on a corporate gathering of worship and the diversity and unity that takes place when that gathering takes place. Um, there's a third aspect of this gladness of worship that you see in verses 4 and 5, uh, and that's found in, in thanksgiving, justice, and rule. Verse 4, um, Verse 3, he says, Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. So they're going up to offer thanksgiving. Um, should remind you of Psalm 100, really famous psalm. It says, enter his, thanks with, uh, enter his gates in, with thanksgiving. So he's entering his gates, standing within his gates to offer thanksgiving. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Thanksgiving is a central aspect of worship. First Thessalonians, in everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God and Christ Jesus for you. There's this, this sense of thanksgiving as the body gathers together. This is important because it connects with the other, uh, this kind of move from being individuals to be a gathering one, because what happens when you begin to um, develop thanksgiving in your life? You, you stop thinking just about yourself. You, you, you become content. You stop complaining. And instead of just looking about how everything is, is happening in your life, things are, things are hard, everything's kind of wrong, you begin to consider, look at what the Lord has done. You can imagine how, how, how difficult this journey would have been for, for most of these people. Um, what, they didn't have easy lives, but they came together with thanksgiving. And we need to remember as we come together corporately for worship, we should be a people of thanks as well. What about these thrones set for judgment in verse 5? It's really important to, to remember um, 
for the Old Testament people to come into the temple and for us to come before the Lord in worship, um, to come before the Lord in worship, there, there needed to be reconciliation. The people needed to be reconciled to God and God to the people. And that's what these thrones were for, a reminder Whenever they're, they're ascending in to, to closer to the temple, there's an undeniable uh, thought of, of God's holiness. God's presence, where God's presence is, is holiness. And these thrones were a reminder of God's holiness and, and man's sinfulness and our God executing judgment in the, mix, in the midst of that. And, and here's, here's the, the beautiful thing, is, is where is he executing his judgment? Or is he executing this justice? Ultimately for us, it's, it's not on the throne of David back in Jerusalem. It's on the cross of Jesus Christ. This, this is where God has, has executed his judgment. It's past our judgment. Um, this is amazing. Look at uh, Colossians 1, 19 to 22. says says, for in him, he's talking about Jesus, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven, whether, in, whether on earth or in heaven. How? Making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Why? in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Isn't that amazing news? They, they, we were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but he has now reconciled us through what he's done on the cross, the breaking of, of his body, the, sh- the shedding of his blood, of his, of his blood. All of this in order to, to present us not as hostile, not as evil, but as holy and blameless, above reproach before him. There's that, that reconciliation that needed to take place. Why judgment? Because there must be reconciliation. There must be satisfaction in order to have reconciliation. Why a throne? That, that he might rule over our lives. Um, these folks had a, had, a, had a visible reminder that the Lord ruled over their lives as they gathered. And remember that they, they only gathered three times a year um, for these festival dates. That they were, they were, and as they gathered, they were confronted once again with, with judgment and the necessity of it. Confronted once again that the throne was reminding them that there was someone else ruling over their lives. Is that on your mind as we come to worship, as we gather together as a family? Are you thinking about his lordship? You have this picture of the throne that's not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, and then in, in, right through to the book of Revelation. Jesus ascends to heaven, and, and where does he sit? On the throne, the right, the right hand of the Father, this place of rule. In Revelation 19, he has his name written on his robe and on his thigh, this name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Revelation 22 speaks of the throne of God and of the Lamb. This picture of the throne carries all the way through to remind us of his rule over our lives.
So we have this picture of, of gladness and worship, uh, this joy of gathering together and experiencing the presence of God in his house. Um, and look at the last four verses here, it's six to nine. It says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. And you, you, sh- you should know this by now. You should have picked up on this by now. But um, Derek Kidner writes that what Jerusalem was to the Israelite, the church is to the Christian. What Jerusalem was to the Israelite, for us, we think of the church. Uh, so verse 6 says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. May, may peace be within your walls. Why, why this exhortation to pray for Jerusalem? Why, why this emphasis on praying for, for the city? You have to remember what, what Jerusalem was, okay? Jerusalem is this, this particular place where the scattered people of God gathered together before him. It's this particular place that, that the Lord has called them for these great festival days. He didn't, he didn't call them anywhere else. He called them to Jerusalem. You want to worship the Lord? Come to Jerusalem. It's, it's the, this kind of solitary place of corporate worship. So remember, they, they, when you get into the New Testament, you see these synagogues where you can gather together for worship. That, that was like an intertestamental thing that happened. They didn't have synagogues yet. You wanted to you worship, you come to Jerusalem. That's the place to do it. Why? Because Jerusalem was the place where God was pleased to reveal himself. You see, Daniel, he, they, they, they pray towards Jerusalem even. It's, it's for those reasons that they were exhorted to pray for Jerusalem. Be, because if Jerusalem was torn apart, then they would have no place to gather to worship God. It'd be devastating. The, the unity, the peace, the shalom of Jerusalem was of utmost importance. And so are we, are we to pray for Jerusalem? Sure. We, we pray for Belfast. We, you can pray for, it, for any place, any city. But we don't pray for the same reasons that the psalmist urged them to pray here. They prayed for Jerusalem because that's where they gathered for worship. But remember again that the church, you are now the temple of God. That the church is the diverse gathering of God's people. The church is where corporate worship happens. The church is where God's spirit is pleased to dwell. The church is God's abiding place. So our prayer is for peace for the church, for her unity, for her holiness, for her success of the mission of spreading the gospel. Phil Newton says, just as Jerusalem was, this, was the physical focus of, the spirit, of all the spiritual longings of the ancient Old Testament believers, much more so the church is the physical corporate focus of the New Testament believers. The, the church is, is not the end all, okay? Just like Jerusalem wasn't the end all. The Lord is. The Lord is the ultimate focus. But how did God reveal himself in the Old Testament? In Jerusalem, how does God reveal himself now? Through the word of God manifesting himself in the corporate gathering of the body of Christ. 
And because of that, the church has weight. The church has significance. It has value. Because of whose it is due to the price of the blood of Jesus being spilled to purchase the church. And because the church now has the promise of the Holy Spirit dwelling in this corporate body, the church has this eternal value. It has this, this, this guaranteed success as it goes on. So every other organization will fail. The church does not fail. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 16, that not even the gates of hell will prevail against his church. The church is called the bride of Christ. You see this this great reality, this this beautiful significance and weight that is placed on the gathered church in scriptures. And so we pray for peace for her. It's okay to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. It's okay to pray for the peace of of Belfast. But we pray uh, particularly for the church. Why? Because that's where God is pleased to dwell. That she would prepare herself ready for the bridegroom. Do you pray for, for your church? Do you pray for village? It, it's, it's, it's easy to do the opposite of what the psalmist is doing here. It's easy to move towards individualism, to move towards cynicism, to move towards uh, being an Eeyore rather than being thankful. You know what I mean by that? Everything's wrong. What's church have for me? I'm coming and I'm not ready. Come and pray for the church. Pray for the sake of the brothers and sisters. Look at verse 8 and 9. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. I love again this focus on, on him as an individual, but towards the corporate. For the sake of who? Himself? No, for his brothers and companions. He has this deep love for them, a deep desire for peace to be among them. His desire is for the many, for the sake of, of, of them. That, that 1 Corinthians 12 language again, that, that we're all members of one another. We, we belong to one another. We should desire peace and unity. We should pray for those things between one another. Satan hates the church. He wants nothing more than for this church to be broken apart with disunity, but we pray for the peace of of our church. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. So just in conclusion, we've we've seen the gladness of gathering together in worship. It's moved from, from individualism to the gathering together of brothers and sisters. See the strong, strong unity within beautiful diversity, the giving of, of thanks for all the Lord has done, for all that, that He is for us, for who He is, this recognition and, and reflection that, that, the ru- that the Lord rules over His people forever. And, and all this gladness and worship in these things, what does it do? It rejects cynicism. This resistance of individualism and the embracing of the community of God's people. Praying for them, loving them, serving them, seeking their good. All for the sake of the house of the Lord our God. Let's pray. We stand and we're going to do what we normally do.
Again, Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We don't love you enough. We don't thank you enough. We just want to confess that, that we are uh, just sinners saved by grace. Our, our, our natural uh, instinct is to, to turn in on ourselves, to be uh, individuals, to, to seek our good, to, to seek how things can be uh, better for our lives. Uh, but Lord, help us to see uh, uh, just the beauty of your church, the beauty uh, of what it means to be your people. All of that, Lord, uh, centered around uh, the gospel, centered around what you've done on our behalf on the cross, that you came into this world to be a sacrifice, to reconcile us to you, to your body and your blood on the cross, that we get to be sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, members of the household of God. And Jesus, we thank you again uh, for all that you've done for us, all you are for us. We ask that you would rule over us. We ask that you would have your way with us. All for your glory, God, and our joy. Placings in your name. Amen.